Amen. So we are in this season of Lent right now, leading up to Easter. It's an exciting time in the church calendar. And today uh, I'm going to be talking about a part of the Bible that has always had a special place in my heart, the book of Ruth. You know, the reason that Ruth has always been so meaningful to me is that as a teenager and as a young adult, I used to help out with a single mom's group that was called Ruth and Naomi. Sometimes I would go to things and play with the kids. Uh, Every Christmas, my wife and I would uh, serve as waiters for their Christmas party. And this single moms group, Ruth and Naomi, which was named after the main characters from this book of the Bible, always felt to me, at least from the parts I got to see, as the very best of humanity. It was like what the faith community can offer, a living community picture of, I think, what Jesus would want. These single mothers finding support, help, care, celebration. You know, the funny part is I was actually aware and connected to this group that was named after this book before I ever personally read through the whole book. And so my experience has always kind of helped inform uh, the book of Ruth. And honestly, I think the book of Ruth is kind of awesome. So the book opens up and there's famine in Israel, which leads to Elimelech and his wife Naomi and their two sons, leaving Israel and going to Moab in search of better harvest. But soon upon arriving in Moab, Elimelech dies. But his two sons marry two Moabite girls, Oprah and Ruth. After about 10 years, both sons die, leaving all three women, Naomi, Oprah, and Ruth, widows. Naomi, the mother-in-law, decides to return home to Israel, return home to Bethlehem in search of help, to go back to where her family is, and urges her daughter-in-laws to go back to their families to find help and care. But after urging them to go back, Oprah concedes and goes back to her family, but Ruth clung to her, proclaiming what has become the quintessential Hebrew statement of commitment. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. Your God, my God. And so back in Bethlehem, Naomi and Ruth are faced with the challenge of living alone as two single women in a patriarchal world. Ruth goes to gather grain behind harvesters in a field that happens to belong to Boaz, a relative of Naomi's. Boaz turns out to be a very generous man who helps Ruth, and Ruth in turn helps Naomi. Ruth catches Boaz's eye, and as a relative, Boaz has the right to buy land that belonged to Naomi's deceased husband, and in the process would acquire the right to marry Ruth as his wife. Boaz acquires the land and everything that belongs to it, including Ruth and Naomi. He marries Ruth They have a child that they name Obed, who is the father of Jesse, who is the father of David, one of the most important figures in Jewish history. He would become king. So on its surface, the story of Ruth, four chapters, is a powerful and 
beautiful picture of love and loyalty in which Ruth commits to the care of her mother-in-law. Where two women who have no power and no real pathway of hope find the help they need. It's a message of God's care for the poor, God's care for women, God's care for widows. It's, it's amazing. But I think Ruth is even more awesome when you begin to look at what it's communicating in its context. First off, uh, probably the most obvious thing, it's a book about a woman. It's named after a woman. The protagonist of the story is a woman. The majority of dialogue in the book is between two women. You know, it passes what's known as the Bechdel test. It's actually a modern test that we look at works uh, to ask whether it features two women who talk to each other about something other than a man. It's actually something that a surprisingly few amount of modern works of art actually pass. You know, I read somebody that the Ruth is the first writing in history to pass the Bechdel test. It's a powerful thing. And in a time and a culture that is hyper-patriarchal, to have a female-centric book as a part of the authoritative Hebrew texts is nothing short of shocking. From a culture that we sit in today, I think we look back at Ruth and we see things that feel like they're reinforcing patriarchy. It feels sexist. Like Boaz purchases the land of Ruth's father-in-law to marry her. And by buying that, he gets to the, the ownership of able to be able to marry her. However, from the context of the ancient Near Eastern world, compared to other writings and spiritual traditions of this time, the existence of and the story of Ruth would have been experienced as downright feminist. It is one of many signposts in the Bible that speak to God's heart and vision of empowering and uplifting women. You know, secondly, within the context of this book, I think it's incredibly powerful to see that the protagonist of our story, Ruth, is a foreigner of Israel. And not just any foreigner, a Moabite. You know, the Moabites were among the most detested of all foreigners. I think the way that Israel thought of Moab and the people there was just fundamentally bankrupt, fundamentally morally bankrupt, like, to the mind of an ancient Hebrew, there should be no such thing as a good Moabite. So the last thing that we would expect is a story of a woman from that country, Ruth, behaving with such affection and care and commitment towards an Israelite, Naomi, much less behaving with a level of loyalty and goodness that was thought to be the sole province of the Israelites alone. In many ways, the story of Ruth reminds us that virtue is found everywhere and in all people. You know, in talking about this, theologian Timothy Simpson said, when we talk about the fact that Ruth is a foreigner, this observation can sometimes get translated into a hackneyed secular speech about how nice diversity is. But this isn't promoting multiculturalism in the way that businesses do. Rather, God raises up Ruth and many others like her in order to erode our smugness and satisfaction about our own sense of blessedness. Ruth brings us down to earth 
because we can't imagine God giving her a special place and preferment to us, given who she is and where she is from. But God does precisely this with Ruth, thus teaching us that we both be humble in our presumptions, but also teaching us to be watchful and expectant of where and how God will act next. It is awesome. Just on the surface, what Ruth is communicating to me is amazing. But perhaps the thing that I find most powerful about the book of Ruth is why most scholars believe it was written in the first place. You know, interesting enough, often, you know, the stories in the Bible were passed down orally for a long time. Like, they were telling stories about what happened, and then later on, they were written down. And the same thing is true with Ruth. This was something that was told orally for years. But the time that most believe it was actually written down was in the time of Ruth's great-grandson, David. The book appears to be defending David's right to be king. He was Ruth the Moabite's great-grandson, and the Jewish law did not permit any descendant of a Moabite to be a member of Israel, let alone king, down to the 10th generation. It seems that the ethnicity of David's great-grandmother was being used to illegitimize his claim as king. But the story of Ruth that we have in scripture is at its heart about how Ruth and in turn David are worthy because of what we see in Ruth's character. You know, it's important at the end, it ends with this genealogy leaving up to David. And right before that, it has this kind of strange statement that in light of this, of what we know about what was happening with David, I think holds some more power. It says, we are witnesses. This is the elders of those in Bethlehem. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home, Ruth, like that of Rachel and Leah, the matriarchs of Israel who together built up the family of Israel. May you have standing in Ephrathath and be famous in Bethlehem. I think the power of what's being communicated is that even though her ethnicity should invalidate her, the elders are holding her up as an example because of her character and the way that she cared for Naomi. That although the cultural expectations would say Ruth and David shouldn't be accepted, the character of Ruth and how she cared for Naomi, it's what her shows what mattered most. It was her character. You know, this attack of David that seems to have created the need for the book of Ruth to exist in the way that it does. You know, the way that I think about it, and it's not too hard to imagine it in our current season, is almost akin to the modern-day political attack ad. There were attack ads coming at David, attempting to illegitimize him, saying, what about the scandal of your ancestor Ruth, the Moabite? You stand here claiming to be king, but you walk into this place illegitimized by your blood. Moabite blood. The whole thing feels very familiar to me today. 
It feels very much like the kinds of things we experience in our current election season. No shortage of attacks trying to illegitimize and undermine others. But the story of Ruth does something quite beautiful, poetic. It does not just cover up who his great-grandmother was. It's not just apologizing and distancing himself from her. Like, yes, I know, but we didn't really get along that well. I really, really come more from my grandfather's side. No, it takes this attack and turns it on its head. It takes the liability that his great-grandmother was a Moabite and makes it the best part of his legacy. That David lives on in a legacy of character. David lives in a legacy of one who does what is right. And through their actions show their worthiness. That's what makes David a worthy leader. It's not that he checks off all the boxes. If you know the story of David, he very definitively checks off very few of the boxes of what his culture would say makes him worthy. Now, what makes him a worthy leader is the same thing that made Ruth worthy. It's the legacy that he lives in. It's his character. And to me, this is even more powerful because Jesus is in the same legacy. Jesus is in the line of David and thus in the line of Ruth. Jesus is really the most powerful picture of the legacy of Ruth. In particular, her self-sacrificial love on Naomi's behalf. You know, as Vince talked about last week, Jesus saw his destiny as being a sufferer a victim, an outsider, as being aligned with the powerless, like Ruth. And that was a scandal to the religious elite of his day who had been corrupted by desire for power and might and status and strength. But to Jesus, this wasn't a scandal. This was the heart of the God he had come to show humanity, self-sacrificial love. It is the legacy of qualities like those Ruth shows that helped set the stage for who David and Jesus were. Any suggestion of scandal from some attack ad because Ruth didn't fit what was expected or wasn't the status quo is irrelevant. What matters was her character. That is what made their legacy. You know, I wonder if this helps us today. I don't know if anybody here is running for political office. I'm not aware of it if you are. But I think regardless of that, I think we all experience attack ads. I think it's something about being human. Something that makes you feel illegitimized, lesser, feel a little bit like a failure, or maybe just unworthy of love, unworthy of acceptance, unworthy of purpose. Usually, I have found, these are tied to where we've come from, the worldviews that were instilled in us when we were young. Sometimes they come from the voices of, of other people. They actually are people speaking things to us, maybe our parents, or maybe somebody from the world or culture we grew up in. And often, these voices are coming from our own head. Voices that are a manifestation of the places we've come from. Things that undermine us, 
like those opposing David attempted to undermine him because of his Moabite great-grandmother. But I think these voices miss the point of what matters most, character. I wonder what attack ads you experience, things that try to undermine you, your sense of success, your sense of feeling good, worthy, valued. You know, those kind of things that say like, well, what about the fact that you're not married? Or what about the fact that you don't have kids? Or what about the fact that you don't work a high paying or culturally prestigious job? Or what about the fact that you haven't bought a house yet? Or what about the fact that your kids didn't get into every great program that other kids did? What about the fact that you're married to that person? Someone who doesn't align with the expectations of where you've come from. What about the fact that your parents are disappointed with some of your choices? What about the fact that you think so differently from your family or from people you grew up with? You know, I grew up pretty immersed in American Christian culture. You know, my grandfather was a pastor. My parents were pastors. And so for me, many of the attack ads that I've had to wrestle with have to do with religion and beliefs. The culture I grew up in had some pretty strong messaging about who was in and who was out in terms of faith and acceptance from God. You know, this weighed pretty heavily on me early in my life. I felt a lot of pressure in my culture to be very clear on what was in and what was out and to work really hard to bring anybody who was out in and make sure who anyone who was in didn't fall out. You know, I recently came to a strange realization that this cultural pressure did something to me. I was recently reflecting, I was praying, I was thinking back through some of these memories, some of the moments of regret that I had and asking for God to bring some healing, some new vision. And I just felt like something seeped into my brain, which was that this pressure led me to grow comfortable in violating my own conscience. The culture I was in, the messages I received, didn't just push me, but actually helped soften me in comfort to violating my conscience. You see, the messaging I began to internalize told me that my reservations, my discomfort in this in versus out approach was just my fear. I was afraid to stand out. I was afraid to disagree. I was afraid of what others would think of me. I was afraid to speak for Jesus, which is interesting. I am afraid to speak for Jesus in a lot of ways, but uh, the other parts, anybody that knows me, for me to say I am afraid to disagree would take some strong offense to that premise. I like to disagree almost for fun. But the messaging told me it was fear, that I was afraid to disagree. Or even worse, there was messaging that I internalized that told me that my reservations were actually a ploy of the devil that I had to resist. So... When I pulled a bait and switch on my friends at school to get them to come to my youth group's outreach, telling them, it's just pizza, hanging out, nothing else, like no expectations. 
that's it. We're just going to have some pizza. When I knew that that wasn't it, I knew the whole reason we were doing it is for them to come there, to hear about things, ask questions, to get them to be won over to faith in Jesus. And as I would feel the discomfort rise up within me as I was recruiting them, as I felt this thing within me that wanted to say, you know what, it isn't just it. I would hear a voice from that internalized message of my culture that that was just fear that I had to push past. That my emotions around trying to get my friends to come in was just fear. Or when I had a friend in high school tell me he was gay and ask me what I thought God, if I thought God would still accept him. And I heard the voice of that internalized message of my culture telling me that I had to stand up and tell him what was in and out. And as I wrestled with feelings of pain and discomfort, when I wrestled through this thing that felt so unsettled with me, that voice told me that what I was feeling was fear, that I was afraid to say the hard truth, that I had to push past my discomfort. And worst yet, maybe my reservation was some ploy of the devil to lead me astray. So I told this friend, no, it wasn't okay for him to be gay and that God very much disapproved of him. And as I look back on that, as one of the moments in my life I probably regret most. And I was reflecting on this recent realization of the ways I grew comfortable violating my conscience. It hit me like a ton of bricks. That discomfort I felt, the reservation I felt, it was not fear, it was not the devil, it was my conscience telling me, no, stop, don't do that. This isn't right. And the truth is, today, I think my conscience is something I listen to more. I think God is living more in my conscience with me, more so than the attack ads. And I think I've gotten better at listening to my conscience. I think I've gotten better at listening to God and not just my culture. You know, I think it was probably about 10 years ago, to be transparent personally, that I came to the conclusion that I believed God was a God of embrace and inclusion. And if anything was an act of fear or an act of evil, that it was actually most seen in my voice when I was speaking words of exclusion to my friend all those years ago. You know, today, probably one of the best pieces of my current experience of faith is that my conscience feels at peace. It feels at peace as I try to live inclusively of my LGBTQ friends. I feel, I don't know, more comfort, connection. I feel God alongside me more frequently today. But I still, to this day, experience attack ads. Sometimes they're from other people, particularly as a pastor who has been in the process of being 
what I believe personally and communicating that to others. Other people telling me that my efforts in honoring my LGBTQ friends is dishonoring God. But I would say most often, it's the voice that had so much power in my youth that creeps into my head that I feel most. You know, Vince and I were here last week. We were doing a little video thing, and uh, just to get us open, one of the people asked, do I ever have nightmares? Like, do you ever get nightmares about the church? Like, you walk up here and you're naked, and you're like, oh, no, no. And I don't ever have those. But I, I'd said to them, over the last three years, I've had many, many nightmares about people I love, people I trust, people I respect, communicating condemnation of me. And many of those people in my dreams are people that would never have said that in person. But it's that voice that found life in my youth that's working its way through my subconscious as I sleep. You know, as I think about being a third generation pastor, it's those moments that I feel the attack of something that says I'm disgracing my family's legacy like disgracing what my grandfather or parents stood for. And in those moments, I, I've learned to turn to Jesus and ask for him to speak, ask for him to meet me. And as I was uh, reading Ruth and working through Ruth, I felt this sense that like, as David took this attack on who he was, like, you shouldn't be king because you have a Moabite great-grandmother. And he didn't just run from the attack. He actually said, you know, my great-grandmother is the best thing about me. I actually began to feel myself not as a disgrace, but actually standing on my legacy. Because legacy is not about maintaining what has come before me or living up to expectations. I think it's about character. You know, and when I think about the character that I want to stand on, I think of my grandfather, who in the 60s was fired from a 10-year position at a Christian college because he invited black families to a prayer meeting at his all-white school. And when the administration asked him to just chill out a little bit about this, like, we're not saying this is not good, but, you know, let's let this work this way out. Let's not push it too much. <laughs> it's funny, because I can see my grandfather saying this. Uh, he looked at them and he said, the, quest, the reason that you, <clears throat> the fact that you're even asking this question makes me question whether you follow Jesus. There is no question in my mind whether Jesus would invite them to this meeting today. And he was fired, not for inviting them, but for his insubordination when they tried to redirect him. And then he finished his life as, as a prison chaplain, caring for people that society has decided not to care for. You know, I think about the legacy of my parents' character, who in years 
where it was not popular, where it was not part of the culture, fought to make space for women to take roles in church leadership, stood into meetings where people told them they were betraying God's natural order. You know, some of the most heartbreaking stories I've ever heard my mother talk about is sitting in meetings and listening to other peer pastors talk about her, talk about what her and the, those with her were fighting for, and not just say things that were hurtful, but talk as if they weren't even in the room. But I think about how they stood and they fought for that as a matter of character, as a matter of conscience. And so when I hear those attack ads in my own brain telling me that I'm betraying what my legacy has built, I feel a charge, like on a spiritual level, to claim my efforts to pursue my conscience, to pursue what I feel God leading me towards in communicating welcome and love to my LGBTQ friends. I actually think that I am standing on the shoulders of my legacy and character. And it's a tricky thing to stand on something and knowing that you disagree. And it's a tricky thing to learn to experience God's validation and not just long for the validation of those from where I've come. You know, and with this, there's a few things that I want to leave you with here from Ruth. You know, the first one is, like Ruth, pursue, proudly pursue justice and mercy. I don't think I'm unique. I think there are all sorts of ways that messages that we internalized when we were young have found voice in our brains today or voice from those people we used to be with when we were young. Messages that feel in tension with our conscience. Messages that confuse what a life well lived is. And in that, I have found the words of the prophet Micah helpful. He says, He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your Lord, with your God. You know, I think of what Ruth shows us in her legacy. And as I wrestle with these questions, I feel the one thing that I'm going to stand on, the one thing I'm going to pursue when I feel that wrestling is I want to pursue justice and mercy. I want to ask, are my actions pursuing justice and mercy? I want to ask if my life is pursuing justice and mercy. And just as an aside, I think there are some of us who pursue justice and mercy to the point of burnout. And this is not the thing I'm trying to say here. I'm not saying just figure out how to give more. What I'm saying is the care we show others. The stands that we take in life are the things that I think most define who we are. And so to me, this is where I want to proudly stand. My second thing I want to leave you with is ask for God's help in managing attack ads. So 
I think it is human to have things undermining us in our brains. Lies, things from where we've come from that want to steal from us. But I want to encourage you to ask God, what does he see when he looks at you? And I think he's going to see in you something different than those other voices. Uh, you know, something I've come across recently, um, and something that Vince actually has done for a long time, is praying something from the Proverbs. It says, like a fluttering sparrow or a darting swallow, an undeserved curse will not land on its intended victim. And so if there are voices in your mind that have actually come from people that have been spoken over you like a curse, even if we feel like that is, you know, I don't believe that, that's not true, those things I think still hold power over us if we let them go undealt with. And this prayer has been helpful to me when those voices come up. To say, an undeserved curse will not land. I will not stay awake at 3 a.m. defending myself in the courtroom of my brain against that curse that I'm not going to make something of my life. That my career choice isn't worth it because I'm not married yet, something's wrong. I'm not going to defend that in my brain because that's an undeserved curse and it will not land. And instead, I'm going to look to Jesus' validation in this moment. And the last thing I, I want to leave us with is, is to pri prioritize character. I think the challenge behind all of this for us is how character is actually built. You know, we say the legacy of character. That's the thing I want to hold on to. I don't think there's a single person that was like, I'm not so hot on character. But the truth is, you know, when I work with my students in my other job, what I always tell them is, you know what builds character? It's when things are hard. When you feel like you don't know what to do, when you feel like you want to give up, and then you keep going. That's what builds character. And the painful reality is, it is hard when we are experiencing hard things to keep pushing through, to make courageous choices in the midst of things. But I think I look at Ruth, who in the midst of such suffering, in midst of such hardship, made choices to keep pushing through her commitment of loyalty to Naomi. And I think the, what I, I want to communicate here is when we are experiencing things that are hard, let us not confuse them as God's desire for us. But let us look to him for resilience to work through those, for those are the things that develop our character. If you'd like to stand with me, I want to pray to close. I'll invite the band to come on up. We're going to enter into a time of singing and prayer right now. Please feel free to sing along, dance, or sit back, let the music hit you. Our desire really is for you to use this space in whatever way feels best to you. 
We also have a team of really trusted and, and kind people in that middle section. If you'd like to have anybody come alongside and pray with you, uh, whether something that was said here feels stirring in you or you just come in here with some concerns, some feeling aware of some need in some way. Jesus, I ask for you to meet us right now. I ask for help and healing as we try to pursue life well. I ask for help and healing from the lies and the attacks that hold weight in our brain. I ask that an undeserved curse would not lay. And particularly if a curse is a result of trying to live well, the curse is a result of you trying to live more honestly. The curse is a result of you trying to pursue love. Curse is a result of you trying to pursue something that is meaningful. The curse is a result of you trying to live with your conscience. Let us not let the places we have come from, the cultural expectations that say, David, you can't be king because you have Moabite blood. Let us look at those curses and let them fall away and instead stand on the choices we are trying to make. And I ask that you would lead us in that. Amen.